0: Hello and welcome to episode number 241 of the Armin Show podcast. This is the place to be. We are with, I'm going to do my announcer intro here, MD, PhD candidate, Dr. Brian Swice, University of Minnesota. He was recently listed on Forbes 30 under 30 list in science. He studies and researches neuroscience. We'll get into some of the details of it in the episode. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is a wonderful thing. I saw when I saw the list, I don't know why, but you were most clearly visible to me. You stood out. The professional <laughs> nature, something about the way you were like, boom, hello world. And then it just fit. So I thought I would reach out. And that's a nice feature that there is a grouping like that. How did you feel about being on that listing?
1: Yeah, no, uh, I, I appreciate it. Thank you for uh for that acknowledgement. And um I, I was I was extremely excited and humbled to have been selected to be on that list. Um, I took a look at both folks from this year and even past years to see what community I became a part of, and um, it was was an exciting moment to know that there's this community in science kind of nationwide and worldwide that um, it it feels a great part to, or a great thing to be a part of that.
0: That's cool. Now, little known fact, I once did some biochemistry as just my studies. How did you get to where you are in neuroscience? You've done your PhD last year and MD mm-hmm. is on the way, I believe. Tell me how you mm-hmm. got to where you are in studies.
1: Yeah. Um, so currently I'm in the MD-PhD program. Um, it's, it's an eight year program that basically takes medical school and combines it with grad school um, and turns it into an integrated hybrid so that you can learn to be a scientist and a medical doctor at the same time. Um, And there are there are multiple ways to to that path to become a physician and a scientist but this is one structured program that um, you can enroll in after college that's kind of one big whole package uh, integrated training. Um, But my roots are from I'm from Chicago, Illinois. And as a college student, um, I didn't know about this program at all. Um, In fact, I was pre-med thinking I wanted to become a medical doctor. My brother was in medical school at the time. Um, And so he kind of led me towards that path. I had an interest in, in science and biology um, from an early age, but I started out pre-med at Loyola University, Chicago. Um, But as one of my undergraduate experiences, I started doing research um, in college in a laboratory that studied stress, cortisol, understanding the interaction between the body and brain. Um, and this was work being done um, in multiple labs laboratories at, the, uh, at Loyola University of Chicago and after that early experience as a freshman or sophomore um, I fell in love with neuroscience and knew I wanted to become a researcher and a scientist and a professor um, I loved teaching I loved that kind of environment that was in a laboratory and I actually for a while wasn't interested in going to medical school um, and I kind of switched gears and had my science hat on Um, And it wasn't until my undergraduate advisors at Loyola, um, Robert Morrison and Louis Lucas, they kind of put the idea in my head that I can do both. You don't have to choose science or medicine. And there are programs that let you be trained to think critically like a scientist and push the field forward and make discoveries while also learning how to directly take care of patients. Um, Sometimes scientists can be far removed from the front lines of medicine. And sometimes in medicine, you might not have the protected time or to get into into research as much as your full-time science colleagues can, um, being busy taking care of patients with what we have. And so it's a very interesting uh, middle ground that lets you work towards changing the, the face of medicine. And that became a, kind of a dual career goal for me by the end of college. Mm-hmm. One thing you mentioned there. <laughs> The advisors, how much impact
0: did they have on you along the way? Yeah.
1: Um, I think, you know, I, you owe everything. I owe everything to my mentors, right? They kind of sculpted my brain at an early age, inspired me in different ways, um, made certain aspects of science exciting to me, um, but then also guiding me along the path of future career goals. Um, even to this day, I still keep in touch with my college advisors as I'm moving through these milestones as a graduate student and soon to be medical doctor. I still go back and rehash kind of where I've been and what are the future next steps and I feel like I was very lucky to have those mentors early on.
0: Yeah. Now, are there any specifics about the University of Minnesota that are beneficial to you in this
1: field? Um, yeah, I, I, I've been at in, in the University of Minnesota for almost eight years now. Uh, I finished college in 2012 and moved straight there for this eight-year program um and i've been there for for almost eight coming up on eight years now and even at that stage when i was interviewing around the country where i wanted to go for the md phd program um, the university of minnesota um, was kind of bursting at the seams with exciting neuroscience opportunities Um, and it was one of the first places i interviewed at and just always was kind of the first sort of uh, introduction to where the next stage of my career could be and I'm from the Midwest, and so it was um, not too far from home. My whole family's in Chicago, um, and it's still, uh, it's a, you know, giant state school in the middle of a major metro. Um, and so it kind of had all the things I was looking for at the time, but, but um, since I've been there over the last eight years, uh, I've been a part of watching how the university has evolved and grown over the years. Um, the, the neuroscience department has expanded in incredible ways bringing on over 30 fat new faculty over the course of the eight years I've been there. And the Department of Psychiatry and Neurology, which were the two areas of medicine I was interested in the most, was is also growing and flourishing in incredible ways. Um, and I, I was excited to be a part of that growth, and it also made my career grow and flourish as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, one thing that comes to mind is on
0: episode 202 of the show, we had Daniel Z. Lieberman. He's a also a scientist and a medical doctor. What difference do you see between you who is doing both programs versus people who are just doing the PhD program? Do you see some clear limitations there?
1: Um, uh, yes Yes, and no, and I think it's a um, different way to, to be trained. Um, so there are the strict PhD programs, um, and then there are also the strict uh, MD-only programs that you can go down. Um, and then there are these uh, newer integrated dual degree programs. Um, and so and then there are folks who have trained me as well that also have their MD and PhD, but they didn't go through a combined program. They, they did it sequentially. Um, some some folks in that in that sort of category were a full time practicing physician that later in their career decided to go to graduate school and get their PhD and vice versa. Some people who are running their own laboratory at some point decided to go to medical school and residency to add that clinical training to it. And so there are multiple different paths to get to that end. Um, but kind of back in the day, they were sequentially done, and now there are more integrated programs. Um, nonetheless, there are individuals that, like I mentioned, have their PhD and do very are very much involved in the clinical world when it comes to clinical and translational research. Um, it kind of depends on what area of science you're interested in. Do you like working with patients? Do you like working with healthy humans? Do you like working in animal models with fruit flies, rats, and mice, or monkeys? Um, and scientists can take any any different form of that. Um, and same thing for, for folks getting their medical degree or that are practicing physicians. Um, you can very much be heavily involved in research uh, with, with an MD without going through formal graduate school training. And again, even some of my mentors now that have their MD are full-time scientists at the forefront of both animal and human research um, and they they can either continue to see patients or spend hundred percent of their time in the laboratory um, so there's there's kind of multiple different ways to get to integrated ends and it all depends on what kind of structure training do you want right do you want five years of protected time to be a graduate student and focus kind of hundred percent on a scientific question for an extended period of time which which you don't have that that luxury of time to do as a medical student and so do you want that that kind of uh, structured early training um, as you're also learning your medical education? Um, and so there's there's multiple different ways to do it. But at the end of the day, there's this large community that you're part of that's a mix of scientists and, and physicians um, that are trained in a bunch of different ways.
0: Now, have you focused on uh, research or ones with animals? And what is an example of
1: research you have been doing? Sure. Um, so. Both the work I've been doing for about the last two or three years has been both animal and human work kind of in parallel, side by side. Um, And even if you go way back to my early research days in college, um, I also started out that way. I worked in an animal research lab studying stress in rats in a laboratory setting, um, but then also had an undergraduate advisor that was doing human research. So these were two different laboratories that I was working in in college. And it kind of came back full circle to the work I'm doing now so i've always had an interest in a knack for working kind of in between worlds right um, my career training is in between being a scientist and a, me- and a- and medical doctor and even my research questions are in this translational uh, gray area in between uh, what can we learn from animals and how do we bring that directly into human work um, and so i've always been in between disciplines kind of where the venn diagrams overlap um, that's always where i found the interesting uncharted territory that pulls together multiple fields. Um, And so examples of the stuff I'm doing, uh, both back in college, I mentioned some of the work on stress, but maybe I'll focus on some of the work I'm doing now. Um, Almost the entirety of my PhD had been focused on decision making, um, how the brain makes decisions and how if we can understand the building blocks of those mechanisms, how can we begin to unravel when that might start to malfunction in different mental illnesses. and different neurological and psychiatric disorders. Um, And so most of my PhD work was in rats and mice, really getting to understanding the mechanism, the neurobiology of decision-making. But over the last three three or four years, um, we've been collaborating with multiple laboratories at the University of Minnesota to take what we've been discovering at that mechanistic building block level and see if if and how that translates into human decision-making. And so i'm happy to get more into the details of of what exactly we do Um, but that's kind of the bigger picture is really across species can we understand how how we make choices and for example in substance use disorder or in depression um, or in in other neurological disorders even including alzheimer's disease how can we start to understand the brain in a way that um, makes gives us a little bit more confidence that we have an idea of what's actually malfunctioning and that Involves research on a number of different levels across species using different tools that um, each kind of laboratory has to offer
0: I've noticed this all the great research that is combining multiple categories together like you wrote effective behavioral and cognitive neuroscience and clinical psychiatry and neurology What are neuromodulation interventions? How do you apply these?
1: Yeah um, so and, and I mean, you know, just you kind of nailed it on the head. I feel like innovation comes at the intersection of, of kind of these great minds all working together. Um, you borrow tools and techniques or ideas from very different disciplines, and it gives you new insights on the current questions your field is asking. Um, so you mentioned neuromodulation, um, which is kind of an a umbrella term for any sort of area of research or even clinical intervention or clinical tools that involves both reading out and directly manipulating brain activity, um, right? So it's a pretty loaded term, but it's just to mean, how do we modulate the brain? Um, and usually when people say neuromodulation, a couple, um, three or four categories of study come into mind. Um, and so uh, deep brain stimulation, for example, is a is a big uh, area of uh, research interest nowadays that involves opening up the skull and going into the brain with wires and directly implanting devices that can both record brain activity and manipulate it by sending um, electricity into the brain. Um, and so that's one example of an area of neuromodulation that has gained a lot of traction recently. Um, obviously, you can affect brain activity um, through means that don't involve neurosurgery and going invasively into the brain. Um, there, there are other ways to, to both directly or indirectly change brain activity Um, but that is usually kind of what people start to think about when we think about neuromodulation. Um, And it's most commonly appreciated for both in the media and in the medical world for um, being a treatment intervention right now for Parkinson's disease. Um, Parkinson's disease is a neurological disorder where um, parts of the brain begin to degenerate, um, and it particularly involves movement. It's one of the more prominent movement disorders that neurologists will study. Um, And besides putting people through either therapy or medications as treatments for, um, for Parkinson's disease to help restore motor function. One particular intervention, this deep brain stimulation involves implanting devices into the brain and stimulating parts of the brain and that can restore function or at least minimize some of the symptoms in ways that don't necessarily rely on medication or if these are for patients at a point where medication is no, no longer effective. Um, and so that's one example of neuromodulation Um, And it really is opening the doors to understanding the brain at a fundamental level. What are the neurons doing in the brain that are malfunctioning? What are other parts of the brain that we can tap into to restore function? Um, And it really started with Parkinson's disease and movement disorders, but it's that tool as one example is is expanding to other neurological and psychiatric disorders. Um, Can we use this technology to understand mood disorders like depression? Um, which is um, kind of another up-and-coming application for this sort of line of questioning.
0: Huh. How much can be altered in the mind? We look at disorders are a key thing we always look at to find out. We look at something that was messed up, and then how can that be corrected? Because looking at something that's already doing well, there's not so much room there unless you think about advancing it. Sometimes I think about the prefrontal cortex as like the most advanced part of the brain when I read about it. Do you think about it that way? Do you think about the different parts of the brain as more advanced or less advanced? What, how do you think about it?
1: Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. I think there's a, a lot of different ways to, to a- unpack and answer that, that idea. Um, so there's a couple different, I guess, uh, ways to measure that or, or analyze that. So there's kind of the brain evolutionary speaking, kind of how things came about. Um, what are some of the, the basic um, life-sustaining functions that the brain plays a critical part of? Um, that's, you know, keeping track of respiratory rates, breathing, heart rate, um, and uh, the kind of automatic functions of the body and mind interface that we don't necessarily think about all the time. Um, and so that kind of starts from the brain stem, the base of the brain, and kind of moves upward as the brain has evolved. And then there's more of the kind of primal motivating drive parts of the brain, the limbic system um, that is involved in emotions, fear, memory, uh, motivation. And then, you know, evolutionary speaking, as you move outward, there's the the outer cortical layers of the brain that integrate our senses, and then as you mentioned, in some of these frontal areas that integrate that into how does that give rise to planning, cognition, these kind of higher order functions. Um, so that's one way to think about the brain as different layers of complexity. Um, but another way to think about it as we're appreciating more and more as a field, is um, there aren't discrete parts of the brain that really do one thing or another. Um, as we're starting to appreciate appreciate the brain as this, instead of kind of these domains of uh, centers in the brain that control different aspects of cognition or behavior or thought. It's really this integrated ball of yarn highway that we like to think of the brain as, as a more of a computer circuit where information is flowing to and from a hundred different areas of the brain all in parallel. And really now we're just starting to begin to develop the tools to understand how that works. Um, and in that case, it's really tough to pinpoint one particular area as being more important or more complex than the other. Um, certainly we can start to ask questions about that, right? What, what key parts of the brain are integrating information in the, in maybe a complex fashion, or paying attention to greater degrees of information and how is it outputting that information to other parts of the brain that drive behavior input output sequences mm-hmm. that's a cool feature
0: now decision making is a big part of what you research how are some key ways that decision making can be impacted or limited that you have found
1: um yeah and uh, that's a that's a good question um that's I think been at the core of my my PhD dissertation was kind of understanding the different ways the brain can make decisions and understanding how that's organized in the brain and and understanding what capacities does that come with and what limitations does that come with as well. Um, And so uh, I'll I'll shout out to my PhD advisors, Mark Thomas and David Ruddish. These are two rock stars at the University of Minnesota that really helped raise me in this line of neuroscience research. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, David Reddish at the University of Minnesota, he has a book that he put out not too long ago, The Mind Within the Brain. Um, and it's kind of this um, bigger picture understanding of how the brain is organized in different ways and how we have different ways of making decisions. And each of those types of decision-making systems in the brain could go wrong in unique ways. Um, and so it all begs the question, how does the brain make decisions and what are the different ways we're equipped with making choices? Um, and so some things that come to mind that are pretty relatable is of course, we can make decisions very deliberately where we think we plan, we integrate all the facts, right? We decide is option a really the best thing for me or is option B the best thing for me. And you, it kind of weigh the pros and cons of everything. Um, right. We, we like to call that, um, a deliberative form of decision-making where you're really kind of uh, processing every piece of information. You're even imagining the future on what might happen, what might life be like if you do these sorts of things. Um, And the neuroscience of those functions is really interesting. How do you actually begin to study imagination? How do you even begin to study um, how does the brain evaluate one by one each piece of information, right? That in itself is a whole interesting area of neuroscience research that's fascinating, kind of. Parallel to all of that, obviously, right, we have habits and we can make decisions without, without all that calm, calculative, calculative planning, right? And understanding the habit systems in the brain is yet another whole area of fascinating research. Um, and yet, um, us, and, us as humans are able to make choices sometimes in either one of those two circumstances, right? Either we're making decisions based on habit or we're making decisions in a flexible manner. And these all live in different parts of the brain that we're starting to begin to to untangle. Um, And as a a third system, there are other types of decisions we'll make that are purely based on emotion. Um, And kind of understanding what emotion is in the brain and how does that influence behavior and the choices we make is another whole area of fascinating research that doesn't quite fit into the planning category or even the habit types of decision-making. And so there's kind of this whole other area of emotional decision-making. Another term for that is uh, Pavlovian decision-making. Sometimes you think of Pavlov's dog that is choosing different types of behaviors based on certain emotional states that can be associated with different cues in the environment. Um, And so just using those kind of three categories of types of decision-making begin to lend themselves to different um, advantages or even disadvantages compared to one system versus another. You know, making decisions based off of an emotional state um, lends itself to maybe certain advantages like I don't necessarily need to think and plan if there's a lion in the bushes when those leaves are rustling for me to run and get the hell out of there. Um, Where that sort of flexible decision making system that is more deliberative and planning that takes time and resources uh, might be disadvantageous in that sort of circumstance, Um, yet there are certain types of decisions we might make based on emotion that had we been cool calm and collective and sort of planned these options may have gotten us or prevented us from getting into sticky situations Um, and so these all live in different parts of the brain and understanding how they integrate or how the individual switches between these different decision-making systems or if they're all happening in parallel is a line of questioning that most of my research has been about
0: Mm -hmm. i noticed in your thesis description you mentioned that you studied models to reveal how multiple parallel decision-making systems are conserved across species over evolution. Right. How, how is that represented?
1: Right. Um, so this goes back to the, the cross-species human and animal work that I, that I talked about. Um, most of what we discover about the neurobiology of how the brain functions generally happens in what we call a preclinical model, or this is research done in, in animals before we even get to human work or even work with patients. Um, I feel like the ultimate impact for most of the research we do is to improve medicine and what we can do for those struggling with different behavioral disorders. Um, And so to get there, though, we have to start with at least understanding um, what are the fundamental mechanisms of how these things work. And most of what we discover happens usually in a laboratory setting with animal models. Um, That's where the tools are developing, where we can go into the brain and um, ask experimental questions in ways that we can't necessarily do with people right away. Um, and uh, and with that in mind, um, most of my PhD work, while it started in rats and mice in a laboratory running around mazes, making complex choices, um, and us listening to parts of the brain and developing experiments to model and manipulate those brain activity patterns. Um, the other line of questioning I've been getting into more recently has been, how do we translate These discoveries in rats and mice into humans, right? Um, You know, a rat and a mouse brain is just a model for uh, us able to study what might be happening in humans, but not everything translates one to one. Um, There are a lot of things, there are a lot of structural, anatomical things in the brain of a rat and a mouse that are conserved in humans, but there are a lot of things that are different. Uh, So, if we can start to study functions in a rat and a mouse brain or even monkeys, does it actually reveal something that is truly happening in humans? And, and what sorts of experiments can we design in ways that um, with some degree of confidence can tell us that? Um, and so I've also been fortunate to work with a third laboratory at the University of Minnesota in the psychology department. Um, this is uh, Angus McDonald's laboratory, and uh, his group is primarily working with either undergrad, college undergraduates or even uh, adults and patients um, in hospital settings. And he does a lot of human research to understand um, how the human brain functions but we all work together and we trade ideas and design experiments both in the animal side and the human side to see if there's any kind of truth and validity to these new things we're discovering in animals that might inform the types of experiments and even the types of treatments we could develop in humans Um, and so it's sometimes tough to take a rat and a mouse running around in a maze and make a discovery about their brain and try and translate that to what a human might be doing in a laboratory setting that isn't running around in a giant maze, right? And to what extent do those functions and the capacity of the different types of decision making systems that we're we're questioning, to what what extent do those translate and actually have a shared truth across species? Um, And one set of experiments that I really got to be a part of that was a lot of fun and revealed a lot of interesting things about both human behavior and animal behavior um, was a result of me working in this uh, interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary space called behavioral economics. Um, I spent a good chunk of my my PhD work um, in this interdisciplinary field sometimes people call it neuroeconomics um, and all that really is to mean is are there ways we can quantify decisions both in humans and animals in a way that allows us to measure these kind of abstract, um, otherwise tough to um, make in a concrete, measurable way. Um, And one thing that I got to really spend a lot of time understanding are, what are the different ways, for example, the deliberative system or these emotional systems or these habit systems, what are the different ways that they give rise to biases we have when making choices? Um, one of the things that makes us innately human is that a lot of times our decisions are flawed and They're flawed in interesting and predictable ways that seem to contradict rationality um, And so I really got to spend time in, in with folks studying behavioral economics um, And this could be a range of topics uh, ranging from anywhere of how do humans buy and sell and trade stocks in interesting ways that don't make sense but that seemed to be justified based on the emotional state of an individual, Um, or anything to uh, why do we stay in unhealthy relationships simply because we put so much time into it, and yet we seem to value the resources we already lost, and we base our decisions on that, when when, according to traditional economic theory, we should ignore those kind of irrecoverable investments and focus on the future. Yet we often let those invade our decision-making capabilities. Um, and so we designed uh, and I, this is right when I came into these laboratories, um, former graduate students um, Adam Steiner and Samantha Abram designed a couple of sets of experiments, both matched for humans and animals in ways that we can start to study these cognitive heuristics and biases identically in a human and in rodents. And can we start to design experiments that try and understand, for example, why do we overvalue past investments when really we shouldn't and for a while. People have thought that these sorts of higher order, complex cognitive capabilities are unique to humans and other animals are incapable of of sensing that sort of information. Um and so part of my research was revealing that humans aren't the only species that make these sorts of irrational decisions. Other species are capable of doing it too. And the question is where in the brain does this come from?
0: Mm. I think about that sometimes. Time is it put Mm -hmm. into something? Is it given more weight because of that? And then I right. don't like how you pointed that out, yeah. that we have the logical end and the emotional end, and then they're good in certain categories. But when they bleed into the right. element that they don't most fit in, that's when we get these scenarios where, yeah, why do you do that? It's right. not very efficient.
1: Hmm. Yeah. It actually might make sense in certain circumstances to obey the sunk cost fallacy. And in fact, it might be rational in certain instances where, if you don't know what the future holds, it might be a good idea to pay attention to what you've already done in the past. Uh, maybe that's actually a good predictor of what's to come in the future. But sometimes it can get you into interesting and sticky situations that it might not be the best decision.
0: I like that one. If you have a better sense of the future and you're acting upon it more so, then maybe give less weight to that. And then maybe right. if the future is less in your hands or uncertain, then you can look back at that like a historical representation. Exactly. And, yeah. And One thing that comes to mind is, as you have been doing research, how good is your sense or how clear is it of like if an organism is stressed, can you like examine the cortisol or can you see amygdala activation when there's fear? Like how clear is like the responses that you see to things?
1: Yeah, um, I think that's a that's a good point to, to kind of bring up into discussion because it um, it's useful. But on the other hand, it can be problematic. So if I stress a human and even a rat and a mouse and define what we mean by stress, but I can just play a really loud noise or frighten or startle an individual, sure, cortisol can shoot up in in all these different species. It could be used as a biomarker of stress. And then the question becomes, and sure, we might even see parts of the brain light up in similar ways. Um, And that's kind of, as you mentioned, the amygdala, right, becomes kind of a uh, an armchair part of the brain that people bring up in these sorts of realms. The question becomes, <clears throat> how useful is that? First of all, um, on the clinical side of my training, we start to uh, in the world of both neurological and psychiatric disorders. Um, how useful is that as either a screening tool or a biomarker to direct treatment targets for it in a way that can improve different symptoms um, and it becomes to be less useful. Right. There are a lot of other things that also make cortisol levels go up that don't necessarily go hand in hand with PTSD or anxiety. Um, right. In fact, very positive stressful experiences that can actually be good for an individual can make cortisol levels shoot up or maybe makes parts of the brain light up that are otherwise also shared with some of these um, disorder or dysfunctional states or psychiatric states where um, symptom burden, burden becomes an issue. but trying to track down or treat these sorts of biomarkers might not necessarily provide some u- utility as, um, as, a, as a target for either diagnostics or, or therapy intervention. So then the question becomes what sorts of questions can we ask or what other biomarkers should we start to point our efforts to um, that actually becomes useful? Um, and this is why I've, I've taken a turn to understand more complex cognitive functions um, because If you look at things through a simple lens, whether it's a rat or a mouse pressing a lever for drugs, and we're trying to develop treatments for addiction, turns out that those simpler paradigms, those simpler behavioral studies are hiding a lot of other things that are probably happening under the hood. And so whatever parts of the brain or hormones might be going off during these kind of simpler types of experiments where it's an animal pressing a lever for drug, um, it starts to maybe hide some of the key parts of the processes going on in the brain that would be worth targeting and that's what i spent most of my phd focusing on right the title of my dissertation was moving beyond simple tests of value because if you start to dive in through a a deeper more complex lens you reveal that what otherwise might be two identical looking disorders probably are tapping into fundamentally different parts of the brain if you ask the questions the right way And there, maybe we should start to build our studies to start to reveal um, what are the biomarkers that we can use to diagnose different individuals that otherwise might look identical based on um, simple symptoms. And might these be someone instead of having depressive symptoms or an addiction, really there's someone who has a problem with planning in a deliberative system and another person that has a Pavlovian decision making problem in a different circuit. And once you start getting into that kind of hairier Uh, nitty gritty level of questioning it starts to change what are you looking for Um, when if I am trying to study fear or stress or interactions with our environment um, things might otherwise get masked together right and that's kind of the way I've been raised to think about neuroscience Mm -hmm.
0: I like this you're looking Uh, clearly in life you want to look at something underneath at a lower level I look at that sometimes in sciences like there's Biology, and then underneath it is physics, because biology still has to follow physics rules, things like that, undercutting things. I like that way of thinking. Now, you have one description where we talked about plasticity alterations. Well, first, does plasticity really stop around age 25 or so? Is that fair to ask?
1: Uh, uh, Again, these are another one of my favorite loaded terms that I think can mean a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Um, the fact that I remembered what I had for breakfast this morning, that's a form of plasticity, something in the brain changed to hold on to that information. Right. And I'd like to think that after that age, you mentioned, you still have that capacity to do that. Right. Um, and so plasticity is a loaded term. I think it really just means that the brain is plastic in that it can change and sculpt in different ways. And that could be anything from entire brain regions, having more or less cells, which might get capped out and limited at a certain part of the at a certain age, although we're discovering more and more that parts of the brain are still capable of regenerating new cells. Or that could mean at a synaptic level that synapses are getting stronger and weaker because of our experiences, which that's how that's one way memories are stored. Um, and so it's a it's a loaded term. And as even in the scientific world, like we have different definitions and what we mean by plasticity. Um, But uh, I like to just think of it as just it's the way our environment and our history manifests itself as kind of a way to store information in the brain. Um, And after some experience you've went through, if the brain has changed as a result of that experience in a either short or persistent manner, that's a form of plasticity.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, in relation to that plasticity, you had mentioned that you demonstrated how alterations in it in projections between the infralimbic cortex and the nucleus accumbens, which I always like the nucleus accumbens. I forgot what it's mostly associated with. I don't remember exactly. I like yeah. something about that. It's capable to giving rise to long-lasting
1: disruptions of self-control. How is that? The case? Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this is now getting a little bit deeper into some of the things we talked about. You mentioned the prefrontal cortex earlier, which is you know a whole chunk of you know the front half of the brain. And so even within that giant area of the brain, there are millions and millions of cells and there are different subregions of the brain that people like to separate from other subregions. And so the infralimbic cortex is just one of those subregions of the prefrontal cortex, Um, right? It's kind of right in the front, in the middle part of the brain, on the bottom side, um, otherwise known as the, the medial prefrontal cortex or the ventral medial prefrontal cortex. And people can, you can divide that, as many times as you want, deeper and deeper and deeper into oh, different no, anatomical. Emotion. Well, so and this gets into again the kind of the whole lo- loaded question about uh, circuits, right? And so now this one part of the brain communicates, receives information from a whole bunch of different parts of the brain, and sends its projections to other parts of the brain. And um, two of the areas that it sends axons to that leave the infralimbic cortex and sends electrical and chemical information downstream. Uh, Two of those regions, one of which is the nucleus accumbens, um, and another region is is the amygdala. And you can even divide up these regions into subregions and further and further. Um, and so the nucleus accumbens, which is the ventral part of the striatum, um, that can be divided into the core of the nucleus accumbens. It's kind of a, a central area of cell bodies. And then there's an outer subregion called the shell. And so the infralimbic cortex preferentially communicates with that outer surrounding shell region of the nucleus accumbens. And also, like I mentioned before, sends connections to the amygdala. And so you have people that have been studying the amygdala and the nucleus accumbens for their entire careers, now with new tools beginning to ask questions, what are specific streams of communication coming into these areas doing? Um, And people have studied this both in uh, fear-related processing and those are particularly people that study the amygdala and then this also has to do with uh, other motivated behaviors like reward related behaviors um, and motivation um, and that's typically associated with historically the nucleus accumbens um, my, my particular uh, um, I guess preferred definition of the nucleus accumbens I know People historically have called it the reward or pleasure centers in the brain. It's clear that it's doing a lot more interesting, complex things than that. Um, what I like to call, um, what I've heard people refer to it as, that it has tended to resonate with me the most, is it's the part of the brain where motivation gets translated into action. Um, there are a lot of things that involve, involved in motivated behaviors that involve planning, that involve thinking before any sort of choices is, is selected. And kind of, this is that one, Intersection in the highway that one bottleneck, where all that information is funneling and now being translated into execute that, um, and it's kind of a couple steps shy of the motor parts of the brain telling you to pick up that drink or walk out that door, um, and physically controlling the muscles of your limbs. So it's kind of a couple steps shy of that, but it's right where all that translation of motivation into action is happening. Um, and so one of the experiments we did that that you referenced um, was understanding what happens when those specific connections from the infralimbic cortex coming into the accumbens shell, what happens to those specific connections as a result of certain experiences, and what happens if we artificially strengthen or weaken those synapses? Um, And what parts of decision making does it disrupt? Um, We kind of mentioned earlier that we have parts of the brain that plan. We have other parts of the brain that um, make more emotional decisions, more habit-like decisions. And so this is kind of a hot topic of even this one set of synapses has already been implicated in playing different roles in all these different types of decision making right some people think it plays an important role in habit formation and what i demonstrated in one of my experiments is it certainly plays a role in your ability to maintain self-control and these were experiments done in rats and mice in a maze where we essentially trained them to gamble for different food rewards Um, and Even the term self-control or impulsivity is a loaded term. right? You can have problems with impulsivity and self-control when planning or when making habit-like decisions. And we're kind of adding our two cents to the piece with our behavioral economics picture of let's take a couple layers of complexity off and look a little bit deeper on uh, one aspect of self-control. And in that particular experiment, it was when animals had the opportunity to change their mind after making an economic mistake if you if you manipulate those pathways you can change your ability to change your mind in a way that is either becomes more or less impulsive um, and that is one very specific type of choice right your ability to change your mind is a fundamentally different type of decision than your ability to just make decisions in the first place right and we're starting to now add a little bit of complexity to it that if you make a choice and then two seconds later decide to reevaluate that choice it's not the same parts of the brain that's doing that second reevaluation. Right. Um, and so that's in animals. And we're now kind of working on what does this mean for the human side of decision making? If someone has a behavioral disorder and it turns out that it has to do with these change of mind decisions versus someone who has problems planning for the future, these might be different brain disorders. Mm. <clears throat> One thing that comes to mind is
0: a lot of people take all kinds of depression medications or fluoxetine, somebody I've known used that or other ones or SSRIs or whatever. Do you ever look at people that use them or don't use them or have them use them as part of a study to like limit a certain part of the brain or something?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm getting more into that now. Um, most of my research to date in, in the human side of stuff has been with healthy humans. Um, and now what I've been doing for the last year and what I'll continue to do as I graduate medical school is now working with patients. And this includes multiple studies going on in the University of Minnesota where we're asking the same types of behavioral, economic, complex decision making questions, but now in patients suffering from addiction, in other patients suffering from depression, in uh, other patients suffering from eating disorders. And in each of these different groups of patients, they're all going to be on either different forms of medication or even as part of the experiments, but they either might be purposefully offer on different medications. Um, and these are just kind of the, the classic pharmacology medications you mentioned, let alone bringing in the new neuromodulation stuff into the picture. Um, and so I'm getting more into this now. Um, and what's in store for me in the future is when I graduate medical school in May, I'll start my psychiatry residency. And that's where I'll spend four years uh, really being trained to be um, uh, uh, fully trained psychiatrist learning how to actually manage these patients with these different medications and with the new technologies that are coming about. And I'm planning to continue to, to do the types of decision making research that I do now as a psychiatrist as I'm being trained in residency. Um, and so that's, that's all to come. But certainly there are a bunch of folks studying um, the kinds of questions we're studying from a pharmacology uh, perspective with these different types of medications.
0: That transitions yeah. me over to what who are some of the people you have read from early on or looked at who are in the science field or in your specific field that you either wanted to do similar to what they're doing or you're doing an analog of what they're doing? Are there any people or books that you have connected a lot with?
1: Um, um, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I would say uh, it's a mix of kind of in my college years books from prominent scientists or physicians that I would, that I would have read. Um, they kind of inspired me along my different career paths, and then as a graduate student and medical student now, it actually becomes more of the the primary research literature and these articles that I'm reading as part of my own research and for my own enrichment that becomes kind of my my major stream of information. And these are also from those same experts or from others around around the world. Um, I actually saw on your podcast that you had, or on your website that you had an interview with Robert Sapolsky. Yeah. Um, from, from Stanford and he's actually one of the, the first influences I had early on in my college career um, when I was interested in stress. Um, and my college advisor, Lewis Lucas, both came from Bruce McEwen's laboratory and that's where Robert Sapolsky uh, did his uh, training at some point before he moved over to Stanford. Um, and so I have many books from Robert Sapolsky I'm kind of just uh, on, on being human, on the uniqueness of being human uh, and understanding the interactions between cortisol, stress hormones, and behavior. Um, and so that was kind of one of my early influences that I was always um, kind of inspired by. Um, it's kind of funny coming full circle and back, I, I did stress research, now I do decision-making research, but I am studying questions on what makes us unique as humans and what are the certain types of complex cognitive capabilities that actually, turns out, make us not so unique and that other species are, are capable of, of, of handling um, just as well, like the sunk cost fallacy, for example. Um, Other authors uh, and books that come to mind, um, Daniel Schachter, he's at Harvard uh, in the psychology department. He wrote a book called The Seven Sins of Memory and kind of was one of uh, the main pioneers in understanding that we have different systems in the brain that store information as memories in different ways. Um, And I kind of uh, that also inspired me. The work I'm doing now with David Radish and Mark Thomas while we have different parts of the brain that store different forms of memory in interesting ways, we have different parts of the brain that use those different forms of memory in the different types of choices we make. So that also kind of played a role in influencing, um, influencing my direction as an early college student. Um, and another author and book that comes to mind, um, Eric Kandel. Uh, he's at uh, Columbia. Um, he got his Nobel. Pri- he got the, he won the Nobel Prize in understanding the biological mechanisms of synaptic memories, and that too played a role in kind of influencing um, influencing my future I mean all, all these individuals are prominent scientists and they also write books for the scientific community um, as well as for the the lay public and that's something I want to do in the future
0: mm-hmm I really like dr. Sapolsky behave was one of the books I took the clearest notes on I still have the notes across the whole book and a lot of people did reference him it was a nice feature also you mentioned personality and uh, people in their uniqueness have you do you have Have you done any sort of like big five or tests of your own like personality what identifying features you have <laughs> situated with
1: I've, I've never done I've never done any of those uh the myers Briggs um which I know is pretty popular, and then there's what a lot of the the psychologists like to use is the the big five ocean as a different personality characteristics. I've never actually taken any sort of uh assessments like that for myself. Maybe I should or over the holiday break. I'll get back to you.:
0: <laughs> Yeah, those are pretty cool. They tell you a little bit in closing i always like to check if you had let's say a megaphone to all the people of the earth what would be a sentence or two that describes what you would want them to either know or uh what you would want to express to them over your coming time
1: um yeah i think uh you know with all with all the neuroscience research that i'm doing as well as what i've been being exposed to on the medicine side of of everything else um Right. This is a constant work in progress. We're discovering more and more about how the brain works, um, about what makes us human and what makes you you. Um, and uh, I think it's always good to keep in mind that, like, we are um, very capable of of changing our own brain. Right. There's a, a book my dad got, the, the Brain That Changes Itself. And I think we also not, need to not lose track of empowering individuals that you have the capacity to change. And while we're talking about complex mumbo jumbo neuroscientific things and experiments we could do or opening up the brain, every every action we take, everything we're exposed to, every thought we have also is capable of influencing change and knowing how to tap into that, I think carries a lot of value that we need to keep in mind. Um, and this is true both for folks in the hospital, for patients and even kids in school during early stages of development, um, that uh, there's nothing more powerful than the kind of complex symphony that's happening in our brain uh, every every moment and with every behavior that we're engaged in or decision we're making. Um, And that's a powerful thing that even science is learning to tap into too, that there's a lot that can come just through behavior itself.
0: Dr. Brian Swice, I want to thank you for having been on episode 241 of the show. This has been
1: fabulous. All right, thank you for having me. This is a pleasure.